So I actually retired now four times. People who come up through science or engineering, that kind of stuff, we tend to be introverts. And we tend to think through problems a lot. And if I don't have something to think about that's actually technically challenging, I feel like I'm worthless. And so I, I felt a drive or a technical need to get back into doing something that I could solve. Warren asked me to come back in the company in September of 21. And it opened the door for us to really put the cultural changes that we've made in place. We could do the right things, that we could put the right processes and practices and policies in place, that we could train appropriately, and that we could get results perhaps in a little slower fashion, but ultimately we would have more bottom line impact. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to do today is to drive that culture through our organization. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. Yeah, maybe geeking out a little bit, but we've got Charlie Hodges, President and Chief Operating Officer of Hood Container Corporation, joining us today. And just a fascinating career and a tremendous icon of the industry. And just to hear his style and the way he leads and manages is extremely valuable. I think everyone will enjoy our time with Charlie. Yeah, I think from my perspective, his leadership and the way he's crafted his persona over the last four decades as a leader in the industry is pretty impressive. Definitely an honor to sit down with him. And now a word from our sponsors. At Oxbox, they remain singularly focused on one area of the industry, and that is jumbo and heavy-duty boxes strength you can depend on. Visit them at www.oxbox.com. Let's get back to the show. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you tell us about your history a little bit? When I came into the industry back in 1975, I was a chemical engineer and came in as a process engineer for Union Camp. They had a very lengthy training program, and I came into a technical department, so it wasn't that you had to worry about production every day. You had the opportunity to actually think and learn and come up through an organization that was very much interested in how you progressed your training so that you could ultimately add to the bottom line of the company. That has gone away. Union Camp did a very good job with it. Warehouser did a very good job with it. Other companies have a totally different approach. They seem to move people around an awful lot, which I think may do the same thing over time, but it certainly doesn't give you the basis that, that I've enjoyed over the years that I've been in the industry. So from the very get-go, I learned everything about paper machines, about pulp mills, about recovery boilers, about power plants, and environmental as well. And I've used that throughout my years in you know, the jobs that I've ultimately been allowed to be a part of, like CEOs, senior VPs, um, and it's at least from my standpoint, it's easier for me to lead a company when I understand more of the details about what's going on instead of having somebody give me their perspective of what's going on. So things like what AICC is doing, what the FBA is doing, what others are doing, what Taffy's doing is critical, but I don't think we're getting the same impact, maybe because of the the dynamics of the generations that are now coming on board. They're quite different. And what we're seeing is the things that uh, 
inspire them and make them want to stay with a company are totally different than what I was looking for 48 years ago. It's interesting to me because we have a couple of guys retiring. My fear is I'm watching all this tribal knowledge from years and years in our business and in our industry ready to just go play golf or what have you and, and uh, how do we keep that alive? They don't do the training programs like they used to. No, they don't. You know, you'd spend six months in the union camp sales training program and then you'd move around to plants. Does that worry you as you see this industry for the next 10 years going forward that, that we're losing some of that? I think without question it worries me. It worries a lot of us that we've been trying to do something to bring more talent into the organization. It's not a fancy industry, as you well know. It's just making boxes. It's not rocket science. Uh, so you really have to figure out how to attract that next generation of millennials or Gen Zs or whoever it is. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do with our company today is to figure out what is it that really allows us to attract those individuals, but also retain those individuals as we go forward. I remember my first job in the industry quoting by hand. And I'm watching in today's technology, we're comfortable throwing the numbers into a computer so it spits out an answer. But back in the day, you're checking your own math and you're trying to make sure that the numbers work. And as you're working through that process, it's teaching you the dynamics of margin at every turn and cost centers and all these details. And as we try to pivot, I don't know what kids my kids' age want to experience the manual trials and tribulations of moving a decimal point and now all of a sudden you're selling something at a loss and right. you've got to call the customer and say, my pencil was a little too quick. <laughs> that, that's a big part of what we're trying to deal with. Of course, we have Amtec through pretty much all of our facilities with few exceptions because obviously we're built from 14 acquisitions over the last 10 or 11 years. So we have everything from J.D. Edwards to Amtec to CTI to... Harry Rhodes, but I'll ask somebody a detail about a costing algorithm or equation, and it'll take a while for somebody to actually go in and figure out really what is going on. So if, if I run more blow and go on a flexo, I'm not having to cover my overhead because it's already been covered in the product that I'm currently running. What is the value then of running more flexo business on a 15 inch, which is sitting idle, as opposed to not running that business. And it takes a long time to actually get an answer out of that. It's in the system, Charlie. Yeah. You don't, you well, don't have to worry in. about it. Just punch, punch it in, it in yeah, system. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> what does the system what? say and how did it get loaded? I think definitely want to dig into the acquisition strategy at some point, your philosophy and leadership. But you mentioned Union Camp. You have a degree in chemical engineering. Back then, were you looking to get into it? corrugated paper. Take us back to 18, 19 years old and what your vision was. I had a high school chemistry teacher that excited the heck out of us around chemistry. And so there was a group of us that got excited about chemistry and physics and science and math in general. And that laid the groundwork for me going to Georgia Tech. And a lot of the other guys that were in high school with me also went to Georgia Tech at the same time. I found out about four quarters in that you can make a heck of a lot more money as a chemical engineer than you could as a chemist. And if I was <laughs> going to be a chemist, I had to take two years of Russian or German, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and if you're going to be a successful chemist, you needed an advanced degree, whereas you didn't need any of that if you were a chemical engineer. So I quickly changed over to chemical engineering. The reason I went into the paper industry was twofold. One, my dad actually worked for Union Camp. 
He was a shipping clerk in a bag factory. And the other reason was I wanted to get back to Savannah. Uh, I really liked Savannah. I grew up in Savannah. And Union Camp had fed me for the first 18 or 19 years of my life and then fed me for the next 17 years of my life after I went to work for them and stayed with them the first time for 15 years, left and came back and stayed with them another two years after that. What did they have you doing when you first started? I was a process engineer working in an environmental group. This was in the early part of the environmental movement, early part of the EPA, uh, where the water regs and the air regs were just coming down the pike. So we did a lot of work around modeling the effluent system to understand what we could expect the BODs to be coming out of the effluent system and how many aerators we needed to run in order to reduce the BOD to the acceptable levels. And so all that was to help drive the cost of energy down so you didn't have to run as many aerators to drive oxygen in the water to make it okay so you could put it into the Savannah River. But I went from there into the paper mill as a process engineer and then shortly after that, I went into production in the paper mill. We had seven machines, most all of them making container board or bag paper. So we had three or four machines making standard bag and multi-wall bag. We had two big liner machines. We had a medium machine, and we had a saturated craft machine. So I ran all seven of those machines, didn't sleep for the five years that I ran those machines because it was a different era back there. It was not nearly the focus on total productive maintenance or preventive maintenance or predictive maintenance or process or troubleshooting, it was really considered an art, interestingly enough, when I came into the industry back in 1975, because it was called the art of papermaking. I think throughout my whole career, I've been trying to move the needle away from it being an art to where it's really a science and that we can really understand what's going on and can really get the most out of the assets that we've invested in. So that was my first 15 years was process engineering as a chemical engineer, but then running a large paper mill that provided a lot of liner board and corrugating medium for the box plants that Union Camp had. When you look back as, as a young man coming in, and it sounds like moving at a pretty good pace through the business, back in the 70s, what were you dealing with in terms of line personnel? What was the management dynamics like? Well, remember, we weren't that far out of World War II. Yeah. It was very hierarchical. And the paper mill superintendents before me were like gods, for lack of a better term. It was their paper mill. You better not go in there without getting their permission. The paper mill superintendent at least thought he had more authority than the general manager did of the paper mill. And so I was just coming in as that was changing over to more, it was still hierarchical to a large degree, but the folks that had come out of World War II were now starting to move out or retire. And so it's kind of like the dynamic we're seeing today. You had to be a little more caring, culturally caring and supportive around what you were doing with your employees. And that was sort of the cusp of that. Technology was changing some as well. Remember, we're a very mature industry, so there's not a lot of things that have changed. The Forge and has been around hundreds of years. But the control systems were starting to change and starting to change rapidly. We were starting to put sensors on the dry ends of the paper machine so we could measure basis weight, we could measure moisture, we could measure caliper, we could measure color, we could see breaks that were coming down the machine. And it was 
rather challenging to get the old papermakers to actually use those controls because not only was there a sensor, but there were feedback loops to the wet end of the machine that would control basis weight or would control moisture or would control these other specs. Well, since they thought it was an art, they didn't really rely on those. So a big part of what I had to do in the technical department in the early days was trying to get folks to use those controls. It's sort of like on an automobile, you have a cruise control. The car's more efficient when you get it on cruise control, right? So you're driving down the interstate, you want to put it on cruise control, you save gas by doing that. The same analogy for the paper machine. You wanted to put those on control so the paper machine would run more efficiently. So that was a real challenge to get those guys to, uh, to use that technology. And then it morphed into moving away from analog controls on the paper machines into digital controls on the paper machines. And then ultimately into mill-wide information systems that allowed us to optimize the whole mills as opposed to the individual assets, which is kind of where I see the packaging industry going and the need for doing more of that, especially on a corrugator because the corrugator is somewhat like a small paper machine. So we really ought to be closed loop controlling or doing some type of advanced controls on the corrugators, which a lot of people are starting to do, Yes. to really get the best return or the most return that we could get from those assets. When, when you were you're talking about the transition from art to the more scientific, were you looking at your career at that point to advance into more leadership positions, or what was your goal at the time when you were working your way through the mill? You know, I never really thought about that very much. It came quite unexpectedly uh, a couple of times that I've been promoted into a higher position. It was totally unexpected. The first one was when I became paper mill superintendent. I was just trying to do a good job in the technical department. And then all of a sudden, the mill manager called me in one Sunday when I was there for weekend duty and said, I want you to be paper mill superintendent. I had no clue or no idea that I was going to be asked to do that. So that was a shocker. And then the other time, I was a vice president with GP and never thought I would move above vice president. I was surprised that I ever made it to vice president with GP to begin with. And my boss, who was an executive vice president, called up and said, we want you to be a senior VP and run the Southern Mills for Georgia Pacific. And again, flabbergasted, they would want me to do that. What was your leadership style back then? And you say you have influences back then, more hierarchical, dictator almost, godlike, as you describe. You're young and coming up. Were you influenced by that or were you seeing the caring dynamic that you explained and crafted yeah. your leadership style that way? That's a real good question. I was probably more influenced by that than in retrospect I would have wanted to be. It's exciting today to work for a family like the Hood family that I think share my thoughts about what culture should be in today's world. It's certainly more caring, more sharing, more empowering, more trustworthy, more evolving today than back then. But the circumstances were different. I was working for Georgia Pacific, who was very quarterly focused, as most Fortune 500 companies are. We didn't know it at the time, but Pete was getting ready to sell the company to the Koch brothers. So it was very important to drive EBITDA to get the sales price up. So it was very much a pressure cooker. I probably aged 20 years in the five years that I ran the CrossFit operation for GP. I think over time I have mellowed to a culture that's much more 
clan-based, family-based, and a lot of that is due to the acquisitions that we've made over the last 10 years, 11 years. Many of those were family-oriented. So as those companies came together, a culture developed that was very much aligned with what the Hood family had and what I know Warren Hood wanted from a cultural standpoint because we had talked about it a number of times. And so we had the opportunity to start thinking about a company that was not quarterly focused, but was much more longer term focused, that we could do the right things, that we could put the right processes and practices and policies in place, that we could train appropriately, and that we could get results perhaps in a little slower fashion, but ultimately we would have more bottom line impact. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to do today is to drive that culture through our organization. We've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years thinking about uh, are we a hierarchical culture, are we an ad hoc culture, are we a clan-based or a family-based culture? And we're some of all of those. You never get to be 100% of any of those, right? No. And in working with some folks that I'd had experience with over the years, we put together where we were and where we wanted to be. It wasn't, all, wasn't big moves but there were some moves across these four axes that actually define these various cultures that I'm talking about. And so we built on that platform from about October of 21 when I came back into the organization and have since put together guiding principles that drive that culture. We put together leadership characteristics, which actually was the easy part. Now you have to go back and you have to make sure that all your processes and policies are in tune with what you're trying to do from a cultural standpoint. And that's where the rubber really hits the road. And you got to make sure that the leadership group is actually promoting what you're trying to do from a guiding principle standpoint every minute of any interaction that they have with the folks in the company. Because it doesn't take very much to have somebody stand up and say, that's not what your guiding principles say. So we're very attuned to that. We're not there, we've got a long way to go, but at least we've started down that road. You, we're not gonna let you easily move from paper mill superintendent to, to hood container today, so we're gonna go back. Okay. To, so you get promoted, you're running these seven paper machines as mill superintendent. You obviously move up again. Your was Union Camp gets acquired, and that's the transition? Or? Actually, I left before that. Okay. Yep, I left in 1990 to go to work for GP. Okay. And I went to work for GP in Monticello, Mississippi. We lived in Savannah. We lived on Dutch Island. I'd take my wife to Brookhaven, Mississippi, and drive her into the town, and it's the worst part of town to come into. <laughs> and you could almost see the tears rolling down her face. You're in You're trouble. You're going to move me over here from Savannah? I said, yeah, but it's a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity. She says, I've heard that before. <laughs> but anyway, she's been a real trooper. I think this last move was 16 times. Oh, my God. And it's uh, kind of like a, I think they call them paper mill rats back in the early days. But yeah, so we moved to Brookhaven, Mississippi. I quickly went from technical director to engineering and maintenance manager to production manager to operations manager. Then I had the opportunity to go into a corporate job. We did what was called a mill improvement process for all the mills within GP, where I headed up a group of individuals that... We actually developed a process with McKinsey to go in and drive rapid improvement in the mills. And I did that for two or three years. We then extended that to the box plants. 
we amended it a little bit when we put it in the box plants. It was more of an area improvement process as opposed to a mill improvement process because you didn't need all the bells and whistles that we put in place from a mill standpoint. I then moved back to Mississippi, but this time to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So I ran the Leaf River pulping operation for GP down in New Augusta, Mississippi. Shortly after that, Pete Carell called me and asked me if I would go to Crossit, Arkansas. So I think you get the picture. These are not the garden spots of the South, right? Correct. I always tell people they don't put box plants in Manhattan. We are in some we are in some interesting towns, yep. and they are towns. Yep. Yes. Yep. Look how fast again. Here you are in 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 GP moving up very quickly. But I, I think what the unspoken word I guess is that chemical engineering background, process guy, understanding automation, understanding understanding the the how the cake is made. And then this improvement track, which is so key in, in processing and, and all that, you're obviously making significant improvement along the way. Is there someone that's watching you behind the scenes as you get promoted through this, or is this really just you know because it doesn't it's not a really a natural progression? No, right? you're right, I, but it's an intriguing one. That, that's a very good point because even in today's world, as I search for somebody to take my spot, you find people that are that have a lot of experience in the mills or you find people that have a lot of experience in the box plants. But seldom do you find somebody that has experience in both worlds, that has had a foot in both worlds, that could actually lead an organization that has pulp and paper operations, but has a large number of converting operations as well. There were a couple of guys that were very significant in, in helping me to progress. Now, I was doing this with different companies. Ed Babin, who was a executive vice president for GP that Pete Carell had brought in the early 90s from Inland, Ed was a great guy. We got along very well, and he helped me along. He gave me a lot of insight into leadership. And I guess one of the more important things he said to me was, you got to trust your gut. And that for an engineer was out in left field, right? You don't trust your gut. You get yes. the data and you make a decision, yes. right? You loved chemistry. Right. There is, there is a hypothesis and a proven theory or a disproven theory. That's it. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he told me that two or three times, and it finally sunk in, I think, of what he was talking about. So he was certainly one. George Wirtz. George was with James River, Fort James. When we bought Fort James back in 1999, 2000, he helped me an awful lot through the years. We remained friends. He actually ended up running a number of other companies. He ran Appbeyond. He ran Wincup. So George and I remained good friends. Pete Carell and I had an interesting relationship. He was always pushing me harder and harder. In retrospect, I think he was doing that to help me improve. At the time, it didn't seem that way, but certainly does now. So I think those are three of the guys. If I go back early on when I was in the technical department, there were a lot of folks there that helped us along. Tommy Tucker, Roger Bart, Wells Nutt. And it's interesting, I probably remember those guys better. Uh, and the people I worked with in 1975 to 1979, which was the four years I spent in the technical department, probably remember more about them and their families uh, and them individually than I do any other people in the whole 48 years yeah. that I've been in the industry. It's interesting to me that it's one thing that, that I hold very dear is there's two types of leaders. There are folks who take on a, a young talent and their entire goal is the mentality of coach. And they'll, they'll teach them everything they possibly can that they know in, in the hopes that they'll, they'll 
rise above the coach's level of talent. And there's the folks that want to keep one ingredient out of the secret recipe to, to control and make sure that, they, that they're always the source of knowledge. And I think that in all aspects of my career and probably yours as well, the, it, the coach side comes from the craziest and most unlikely characters in, in your career, but it's the things that you never forget. Right. And, and I'm always fascinated by that. And it, how do we get more of the coach style in our business? Because they have a little more of a caring kind of mindset and it's never easy. And then that, I agree with you, the hardest struggle is leadership can have one common vision and culture and strategy and the ability to push that down as the organization becomes more complex is so incredibly challenging. Yeah. But it, the celebration is when somebody at line level says something that, that one of your leaders have said and it's well, been a good day. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. When you get up to senior VP, say it's kind of like the rat race, you're running on, you're moving, moving up in the organization. At that point, were you getting burnout with all that? What was your career like at that time? What was your perspective? Did you have visions of running your own company at, at this point? Or were you just in the nitty gritty of it all? And no, I was your- in the nitty gritty of it all. At that time, by the time I became senior VP, there was comments being made about who the next CEO was going to be or chief operating officer. I probably thought about that as a natural progression. But it was about that time that the Koch brothers bought GP, which was the end of 2005. That was huge because I was far enough up in the organization that I had golden parachutes and stock options and all those vested as a result of the acquisition. So I actually thought I was going to retire. That lasted for about two weeks. <laughs> and this George Wirtz guy I was talking about who also left GP had had gone out and was actually consulting for one of the major bag manufacturers in the United States, a company called Duro Bag. And he asked me to come in and help from a process standpoint with that, which ultimately led to me, in a very roundabout way, to me getting on the board of a West Coast pulp and paper company called Port Townsend Paper Company. And then the private equity firm that actually owned the paper for the West Coast asked me to be the CEO out there. So that's when I left the South and went to Port Townsend, Washington, Vancouver, BC. Uh, we had mill a mill in upstate Washington, right on the Puget Sound. And we had converting in Canada, in Richmond, BC, in Kelowna, in Calgary, and in Vancouver. And so I went out and did that for four or five years. And my kids were getting married in the South, and they were starting to have grandchildren. So, again, my wife said, you can stay up here as long as you want, but I'm moving back south. <laughs> That's about what she said. <laughs> Not quite so many words, but so I left that, again, expecting to retire. And about the time I left that, Warren Hood comes calling. And he said, I want to buy a pulp and paper mill, but I really don't know anything about pulp and paper can you come help me with the diligence on the mill? So this was when IP was having to divest three paper mills as a result of their acquisition of Temple Inland back in early 2012. So I did that, again, never expecting anything to come of that because I really didn't expect that we would be able to get that mill. And I say we, all I was doing was the diligence. It was really Warren and the Hood family that was doing everything else. And son of a gun if we didn't get the mill. You're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I was shocked. I said, yeah, it was like one of those promotions. I was totally shocked that we actually got that mill because all the big guys were in there bidding on it. 
So we ended up with the new Johnsonville, Tennessee mill, and uh, New Indy ended up with the two mills out on the West Coast. So then Warren needed somebody to run the mills. And so he asked me to stay on and run the mills. And then it became obvious very quickly that a standalone medium mill was not the best position to be in from a return standpoint. And that's when we figured out that we really needed to add converting operations. And so in, in the 2013-2014, we bought Stronghaven, which was four facilities in the south. Shortly after that, we bought a facility in Tampa, Florida. Then the mill in Baton Rouge or St. Francisville became available. And a lot of this was done... It was IP as well, right, St. Francisville? No, it was actually held by a private equity firm called KPAC. Okay. Yeah. It was originally a Crown Zellerback mill. And then Crown Z, it was making magazine paper. So when magazine paper for Time Life, Sports Illustrated, started to go away, they lost their markets. They stayed around for a while with coffee filters. So they made all the coffee filters for Mr. Coffee's. Then all of a sudden, the, the pods came around, and that yeah. went by the wayside. So then, uh, I was trying to remember the name of the company. It went through two or three different holdings. I think it was Tim Beck came in and decided to convert it to container board. And that was really one of the first mills, first virgin mills that had been converted to container board. And they put a lot of money into figuring out what it would take to convert it and started the conversion, and then they went bankrupt. And so KPAC actually was one of the investors. They were able to buy the bonds significantly less than face value. And we started looking at that mill as other people were looking at it. And Warren did a very good job of developing relationships with a number of people in the industry. He had a previous working relationship with John Dillon. And the same thing went for KPAC. Warren developed a working relationship with Mike Kazma, who is the principal that allowed him to get that mill. So we had good liner board mill, we had a good medium mill, still didn't have much converting, and that's when we started buying converting operations. And this is where I learned a lot from him, or at least solidified some of my thoughts about the right way to run companies. He tries to hire the very best people he can find to run the companies, and he lets them run it. So that's my philosophy as well. I don't know, I know a pretty good bit about paper mills. I don't know a lot about converting. You guys could run circles around me from a converting standpoint. But go out and hire the people that know how to sell and operate and cut them loose and be a servant leader, give them the resources they need, knock the any walls down so that they can be successful and let them run with it. And that's what I try to do. Great perspective. Steve Jobs said, I don't hire people to tell them what to do. I hire people for them to tell me exactly. what we can do better. Yep. It's a great perspective. Yep. There, there was a gentleman that spoke at AICC in Las Vegas in 1999. His name was Don Beveridge, and he came up through the IBM sales system. And his thing that has resonated with me for all this time is, don't come in my office and ask me what to do. Come in my office and tell me what you've done. And I'm a huge fan of our job is to get obstacles out of the way. That's it. Where can I help you be successful? And I love that philosophy that you bring to the business. How many direct reports you have right now in your business unit? I have seven. Yeah. Yep. One is actually a new acquisition that we made back in August of last year, and he just reports to me so that we can keep things consistent at least for a year before we try to, before we go in and try to change too much. But really, I have a senior VP of the mill division. I have a VP for operations and a VP for sales for the industrial cargated division. And then we have a display and graphics group division, which is also has a VP of operation and VP of sales. 
and then I have finance, I have HR, and I have one gentleman that is my uh, VP of analytics and continuous improvement. That's great. Yep. When you got, when you started doing the diligence with Hood, there, you mentioned there were two times that you considered retirement. You mentioned that you did pretty well through your time with GP. What brought you back? Like, why didn't you want to retire? What was there a drive inside of you that just kept bringing yeah, you back? There, or like, why clearly didn't need the yeah. job? There's a, there's a, there was a couple of reasons for it. So I actually retired now four times. I think <laughs> the first couple of times, glutton for it, punishment. <laughs> it was really people who are come up through science or engineering that kind of stuff. We tend to be introverts. And we tend to think through problems a lot. And if I don't have something to think about that's actually technically challenging, I feel like I'm worthless. So just sit around not doing anything that's actually improving my mind or improving a bottom line is critical to my psyche to feel important. Now, that's probably pretty sad, <laughs> actually, but it is true. And so I, I felt a drive or a technical need to get back into doing something that I could solve problems with. I think we all need, we all have an internal drive. I think that's what motivates us to get out of bed every morning. So it's, I don't think there's anything sad about it at all. It's what, it's what you're made of. That's it. Yeah. It's just, yep. It keeps you young. Yep. The other reason though was I selected my replacement back in 2019 and I left in March of 2020, which I think was an ideal time to leave because the pandemic started the week I left and I came back after the gentleman that uh, took my spot didn't work out, Warren asked me to come back in the company in September of 21. So all that was left was Delta and Omicron, and that was pretty much by the <laughs> wayside, right? So I didn't have to deal with all the rigmarole that went on from a pandemic standpoint, which was really nice because I don't like to deal in the details anyhow. I like to be up here. But Warren asked me to come back the second time, and I don't really have a good taste for what total retirement is going to look like because it was so different in that year and a half because you couldn't go anywhere. You had to stay in the house. You were scared to get groceries at the grocery store. And we had planned to do a lot of traveling and had a number of trips that we canceled because you just couldn't do them. But I was very excited about being able to come back into the organization. And some things had changed in the organization that allowed me to feel more comfortable coming back in. And even though the guy that replaced me didn't work out. He really set the stage for the cultural work that we were that we're doing now. He had a different approach from where we wanted to be from a cultural standpoint. And so it opened the door for us to really put the cultural changes that we've made in place. I imagine when you came back, it was almost hearing all that, it was almost a relief to a lot of people. Right. And it was probably really refreshing for you as a professional to see how welcome you were to come back. Absolutely. And it still is. I, I, and I really appreciate that about the folks. Now I'll flip that too. And now I think you bear the burden because you alluded to this of your replacement. Can someone be successful? There's stylistic, there's idealistic in terms of how you run the business and how you manage your folks. That's a big, that's a big responsibility to pass. How do you set the next person up? I think a big part of that is a recognition that the culture that the individual embraces is so critically important to their success going forward and the success of the company. And so what we've included in our searches this time, which we're now involved in actually, is quite a bit of time with an industrial psychologist 
who has worked with us on putting together the cultural aspects of what we're trying to do. So she really understands where we're heading for a cultural, from a cultural standpoint, and she's able to pry, for lack of a better term, into the individual psyche that she's talking to to understand whether or not he or she would be a fit for what we're trying to do from a culture and a guiding principle standpoint. So that's the biggest change we've made. I think the other change is that we're doing a better job from a reference checking standpoint and trying to not only check references from a position background or job background, but we're also talking from a social standpoint. Give me some social references as well for people that you don't necessarily work with, but you go to church with or you're in organizations with or whatever. And so those are the two big items that we've changed. They're spending many hours with the industrial psychologist now as a big part of making sure that we get the right person this time. That's great. That's yep. fascinating. Yep. Yeah, I just hire slow, fire fast. Not that we're trying to fire. Usually you wait too long with someone that's not the right fit or doesn't seem to show success in the objective metrics and things like that. You know, you know that's a good point because when we started thinking about culture, we talked a lot about clan and family. But on the other hand, we knew we had to get results. Uh, so there was a result orientation, and the consultants kept saying, you can't do that. You can't be clan-focused and result-focused at the same time. And I think we thought through that enough to come to the realization that if a person is not performing in whatever environment we generated as a company, it's the right thing from a company standpoint, but it's also the right thing from the individual standpoint to let them know that through appropriate counseling and performance improvement plans. But if they just can't make it in that culture or that environment, then it's the right thing to do for them, too, to let them go and do something else where they can be an appropriate part of an organization. Yeah. And so that's how we reconcile the idea of a clan culture with a results-focused operation as well. Yeah, I think that clan culture dynamic, as you said, 14 acquisitions, I've spent time in that space, and I believe firmly that if there's not assimilated cultures between buyer and seller, it's doomed to fail. You can have the best strategy in the world. And you've talked a little bit about that. How do you, how do you drive the intermingling or meshing of slightly different but assimilated cultures in an acquired business without changing the character of that facility or group of facilities? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I'm not sure that we do that or do it very well, actually. The first thing I do is I try not to change anything for a year. Let's understand what they do that's good. Let's understand what we do that's good that we might be able to bring to the table. And some things have to change. The 401k systems legally have to change. The payroll systems will change, those types of things. But in terms of running the operation and the people within the operations, we don't change those for about a year. And then over that year, that lead individual who really will set the stage for the culture within that organization will start to get to spend some time with the other leadership group. And hopefully, we'll start to embrace the culture and the guiding principles. But so many of the companies that we bought had very similar cultures because they were coming from privately held folks. Probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 percent came from people like Gary West and the Isons in Chicago and Pete Hanicamp, Bob Hanicamp, those guys. That was probably seven or eight of the facilities or more that we have today. And all those folks had the same type of clan or family culture. And so they not only fit into what we were trying to do, but they also formed the basis of what we were trying to do. 
from a cultural standpoint. But it goes beyond culture because you have, like we talked earlier, you have all the legacy systems that you've got to deal with. You have all these different assets. So we probably have one of everything, of every brand of converting equipment that you can imagine, even Thompson die cutters. We still That's have those. Great. Yeah. So bringing all that yes. together into a homogeneous single company is a big is a big opportunity that we're currently trying to work on. It's funny that you said that. I was literally my next question to you was now as a process guy, the back end of the house. That was my next question. Do you try to deploy a team to just say, hey, we've got it? There is a dynamic there. There's messaging in that culture hands off and you guys are doing to the leader more of a, hey, come and take a look and see that, that there's a lot of similarities, maybe some nomenclature differences, but you work on that culture piece and then it's that slow frog in the water as the pot begins to simmer back of the house, systems and processes. You do rely on the leader, so you get them assimilated to the hood way of doing business and then you start to ask them to lead that charge or do you send a team in? We've done it depending on which of the systems and processes that we're after we've done it in a couple of different ways. The most prominent way though is something we call the hood performance system. So we wanted to make sure that we were empowering our employees, that we're, we're getting information from our employees and that we were giving them information so that they could run their operations. So we began with communication modules so that there are, there are shift exchange meetings, there are routine meetings with, with operators and supervisors, there's routine meetings with plant managers who are reporting how the plant's doing back to the, back to the operators and mechanics. We have followed that up with improved maintenance through computerized maintenance management systems, so we now have one computer system that we're spreading throughout the whole organization. But in order to make that successful, we then had to go back and we had to go through a common nomenclature for all our equipment so that when we're looking for spare parts from one facility to the other, we can actually figure out that this, part, this spare part works for this piece of converting equipment. That's a huge part of what we're doing. We're doing the same thing from a quality standpoint. So all that rolls into what we call the hood performance system. And we've identified focused facilities within our organization that really need help in bringing them up to speed but it's not only the processes, we're putting a good bit of capital sure. into our facilities as well because we bought these legacy plants and they were really not well capitalized and people who knew they were going to sell wasn't necessarily putting a lot of money back into the facilities. And so we're just starting after many years of starting to get some of them to the point where they're, we could compete against the blow and go business. We don't wanna compete against the blow and go business because the margins are so low. But we certainly could now with some of the equipment that we're starting to put into our plants. That's great. So we have that in place. The other thing was data accuracy. And so we had to put a group of individuals together to make sure that the information we were getting out of Amtech was accurate so that when we did costing or whatever we did, that we were getting good information to make decisions on. So that was a big part of driving the consistency that we're trying to drive across the organization. So we did it with culture. We're doing it with the hood performance system. We're also doing it with a lot of the, what we call councils, where we take customer service managers from all the facilities into synergy teams. They meet and figure out what are the things that we need to be working on. And then they will put policies and procedures and training in place in order to drive the integrity of the data that we're getting out of those systems. 
But I have, I have one person, this VP of analytics and continuous improvement, a guy named Bernardo Lawrence, BT. And BT knows everybody in the industry. It's amazing to me. Every time I ask, you guys might even know him for that matter. But he does a fantastic job of interfacing with the uh, converting equipment suppliers, but also he's run box plants. He's run regions of box plants. So he's a perfect fit for what we're trying to do from a continuous improvement standpoint. Phenomenal. In 2022, you were inducted into the ICPF's circle of distinguished leaders for your contributions to the industry and further developing the industry, mentoring your leadership. Was that another surprise in your career? Very much. <laughs> Clearly, that had to really mean a lot, but I imagine so that 40 years of hard work is recognized. Explain that moment when you got that call or when you found out. <laughs> I actually found out because my wife had left her computer open in the kitchen, and there was an email from my executive assistant, and Colin never writes Kathy. <laughs> so that perked my interest. So I actually read the email, and it was about the award. So I actually knew Mike before. Well. <laughs> but it was because I was sneaky. It was absolutely a total shock, but I was very excited about it. I, th I think back over the years that I've been in the industry, and I guess the parts that have been the most pleasing to me have been when, as you were talking about earlier, where you could coach or you could mentor uh, young engineers or young professionals who are coming up in the organization and then see them advance into some of the guys that work for me in CrossFit are now senior VPs with Georgia Pacific, and I still stay in touch with them, and I know about their families. And, uh, it was just, it was an unbelievable moment for me. I can see the, just the smile on your face when you talk about, you're probably running through some people that progress their career through your coaching. Exactly. Look at the NFL or coaches, they have a coaching tree yes. and they judge their success ultimately on wins and losses, but also who they elevate. And right. They clearly in your career, that's something you've spent a lot of time doing. Yep. Charlie, what would you say to young talent today? the key message as they start their careers, maybe not in the paper or box business, but what would you try to share? Always be learning throughout your entire career. You never get to the point where you can't continue to learn. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I think so many times, maybe not the millennials today, but when I was coming along in a hierarchical environment, you didn't ask a lot of questions. A lot of it you had to go find for yourself. I see with my sons in today's world, they have so many contacts where they'll run things by other folks, where a lot of mine was done just learning it for myself instead of taking advantage of, of the knowledge that was already out there. Maybe, maybe other people wouldn't have shared it at the time, but certainly I think that's an opportunity today. And incidentally, that sort of brings up the whole concept of hybrid work in one of the issues that I have with it is that lack of mentoring. When individuals aren't in the office, they're not being supervised, and they don't have mentors. They don't have coaches, and they don't have that one-to-one -one contact. And ultimately, I think that's going to have an impact on the productivity of the organizations that go to a purely remote workforce. I'm not sure being in the office 100% of the time is right, and we pretty much adopted a hybrid approach. But we don't have a lot of young engineers or young professionals coming in our organizations where I really see that there needs to be more one-on-one -on -one contact than would perhaps be available if you were doing it in a totally remote environment. Great. If you were to say something to your 
21-year-old self coming out of Georgia Tech, if you look back on your career, the things that you wish you would have done differently or regrets? There was one. It wasn't when I was 21. It was when I was working for GP. I had left the mill and went to work for Doug Tom. I don't know if anybody remembers Doug Tom. Doug Tom was a VP of converting for GP. And I ran the box plant, the manufacturing portion of the box plants for Doug. And then I went and did this mill improvement process. I got a job opening for, I forget what he called it, director of sales or operations or something for the southern region, which was probably 10 or 12 box plants where you actually ran sales. You had general managers, but you ran that. And I said, Doug, I want to stay in the mills because I can be a VP if I'm in the mills a lot quicker than I can if I'm in the box plant. If I had that same opportunity today, I would probably more than a 50-50 chance I would have jumped over to the box plant side of the house. Because quite honestly, I think the box plant guys made a lot more money than I did <laughs> staying in the mills. Yeah. I have a feeling if you would have made more money and had a chance to retire, you would have just stayed retired there four weeks go. and got back in. <laughs> <Yeah. so. laughs> oh. See, that's why I told you. It's a, it's a sad story when all you want to do is work, right? It's wonderful. Yep. It's wonderful. We thank you so much for this. This has been outstanding. Well, thank you guys. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.